0: had a, a, an opportunity to kind of focus on our kids a little bit with our prayer time and i asked my kids at the dinner table a very interesting question this week you always got to be careful when you ask kids a question because they will answer you and uh you will get a pretty interesting response but it's it was a simple question i i asked my kids is this world a loving place is this world a loving place Now, if somebody just randomly asked you that question, what would be kind of your default position? Well, sure. We've got Myrtle Beach. We've got the Smoky Mountains, Grand Canyon. Beautiful weather this week. Of course this world is a loving place. Now, I forget exactly what each of them said, but it was much more negative. It was, well, people get divorced. People get drunk and they drive cars and they kill people. People fight all the time. And this is a 5, 6, and 10-year-old asking, is this world a loving place? And the, the truth of the matter is, if life is quiet right now, there's no distress in your life, you're healthy, you have calm waters, you probably kind of look at life and go, you know, life is not that bad. But if there's marital conflict, family conflict, financial issues, oh, goodness, life seems terrible. If you have the audacity, even, to cross swords with the political correctness of this day, you will find how unloving a place this world can be. For a real-life example, consider what has just happened with Chick-fil-A, in recent months, the CEO is being interviewed personally and is asked as an aside. This is not a political interview. They're just asking him questions about his company. And the focus of the interview turns to the nonprofit division of Chick fil A that is well known for supporting traditional family values. And the reporter, kind of as part of the reporter's due diligence, asks, Dan Cathy, about his support of the family. And he says, we sure are supportive of the family. We believe in the Bible's definition of what a family is, period. He didn't say anything political. He didn't say anything in that sentence that was hateful or vile. As a matter of fact, probably here in the church, the things that he said, we went, you know what? Good job. He, he didn't turn it into a controversial statement. He simply stated the fact that, as the CEO of the company, he was proud of how his nonprofit division was supporting things that he thought was important. Unfortunately for Dan Cathy, he didn't realize that that was a hate-filled, violence-inspiring statement. And that now, Chick-fil-A, the organization that he runs, is a misogynistic, crime-inspiring a uh, horrible place that needs to be eradicated from the face of the planet. Within hours of that media interview, of that interview happening, a, a media controversy started, where you had the country divided, not over Republican or Democrat, but Chick Fil A or no Chick Fil A. And the side that preaches tolerance certainly was not tolerant of Mr. Cathy's opinion. I don't remember where I saw the video, but uh, we're, we're grateful for the economic boost, whatever that may be, when the Democratic National Convention came to town. Helps tourism, brings people in. That's a great thing. And a television host, who is typically known for his liberal bias, did uh, on-the-street interviews with people at the DNC. And they were talking about, well, we're the tolerant party. We accept everybody. Unless you're a white evangelical or you have guns... Or you're a redneck. But I would never, I would never call any, I would never call a redneck names. Excuse, excuse me. <laughs> and the, the point was: when you start to live differently than what the world's value system or whatever the flavor of the day is, you're in for a rough ride. And so when we stop to think about whether the world is a loving place, we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. And we are told plainly within the scriptures that the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan both claim the territory that we walk on. We don't typically think of our transactions throughout the day as supporting the kingdom of God or the dominion of Satan. But we typically undervalue the fact that there's even a war going on at all. So we should not be surprised when the Bible tells us plainly that this world really does turn out to be less loving than you'd like if you intend to live out your convictions. And the truth is that even in John's day, when he wrote this letter, First John, to uh, his congregation at Ephesus, he was writing to a world context that was not supportive of the Christian message. And So while we may look to a recent uh, event uh, in our nation... We are not so unlike John's original hearers. And so today, as we listen to John's instruction, how do we find encouragement to live out our values in a world that doesn't appreciate what we stand for? And that's what we'll see in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. If you're not there, I invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures, and John begins in verse 11 by telling us that we must heed the old command. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3, it says this, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In a world that really only loves its own, in the church we had better make sure we are doing a good job of loving our brothers and sisters had an interesting conversation this week about how tempting it is even for Christians to come to church to kind of get their own needs filled. Church is kind of like a filling station. It's like a gas station. You know, my tank is low. I need them to fill me back up. That's not necessarily what the church is for. The church is supposed to be a recruiting station for sending soldiers out into hostile territory. But we're so busy getting our own life fixed that you come to church to feel God's love You don't necessarily come to church to show God's love. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I ask the question, who here needs to feel God's love today, and you raised your hand, I bet you there'd be very few pockets of areas in our congregation where there wouldn't be hands that are raised. The problem is when we're so focused on our own needs, we're not paying attention to the person who's sitting next to us. And John says here, in a hostile situation, Christians had better get the command to love right. Because if you need it, guess what's also true? Everybody around you needs it. So high schoolers, we just prayed for you among some other students. How how are you encouraging fellow teenagers to live for God? Senior adults, what kind of legacy are you leaving when it comes to obeying this old command to love. And and John, as we've said over the weeks, he continually comes back kind of cyclically, screwing the truth deeper and deeper into our minds about love. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he talked about love. He said this, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. But on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In chapter 2, we're told to walk in the light. And one of the characteristics of a light walker is love for a brother. So the contrast in chapter 2 is that love, and the love especially that Christians show for one another, is a contrast between light and dark. When you get to chapter 3, he changes the contrast. Is it true that showing love is a contrast between light and dark? Yes. But in chapter 3, he says not only is it a contrast between light and dark, it's a contrast between life and death. How's that for up in the ante? Light, abstract. Life and death, concrete. And he's saying in 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 this passage that uh, while he's already expanding it, we can't take if love is an issue of life and death, we cannot take it uh, for granted. This passage, verse eleven, chapter three, says that this message is from the beginning. Now, some people kind of quibble. What does "from the beginning" mean? This is the message you have heard from the beginning, from the beginning of my Christian walk when I first became a Christian. Or from the beginning, meaning Genesis 1. Well, the message of love, where does it start? It certainly takes on a new significance when you become a Christian. So it's certainly true that it's from the beginning of your Christian walk. But when he says it's an old command, as we'll see in the context, I think John is pointing us back to the garden and saying that the command to love is as old as creation. And we'll see in just a second exactly how he talks about that. Now, just because the command to love, as John has said, has been around for a long time, it's an old command. It doesn't mean that it's any easier. Moms and dads, if you have multiple kids, have you told them ever that they're supposed to love their siblings? Maybe just once? Not not just once, multiple times? So, in your family, loving your sibling is an old command, a worn-out command. (laughs) You have to tell them repeatedly. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's easy. We have a temptation to be so attracted to the new and the shiny that we just dispatch with the old. I don't want an old command. I want a new command. Well, the problem is we never got the old command right. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's easy, and I think sometimes we're so enthralled and so enticed by the new, we kind of think like Adam and Eve, they had like Model T love, and we've got like Mustang GT love, you know? Tech, technology has so improved our love. Listen, love is not produced on an assembly line. It's not like we can up our production of love. Love is an issue of what? Not technology, but character. It's an issue of your heart. And listen, from Adam and Eve forward, our hearts haven't changed. We're not loving people. We're selfish. And he continues on. He says, we've got to remember this old command to love. And this sounds so basic. Love? It's an old command? Got it. Well, do you? If love is sacrificing for the benefit of someone else, What have you sacrificed this week? Who would stand up right now and say, "Uh, yeah, that person showed me love this week? Would your spouse? Don't raise your hand. You may have lived with your spouse this week, but have you sacrificed for your spouse? You may have tolerated your children. Have you sacrificed for your children this week? We think that this sounds basic, but I hope and I pray as we walk through this passage that you will see in a new sense the difficulty with carrying out this old command. So John provides an example for us of exactly how old this command is. And it goes all the way back, as we said, to the very beginning. And Cain, one of the first children born in the Bible, violated it. And so in verses 12 through 15, we are warned to beware the ancient Evil of jealousy. Look with me at verses 12 through 15. It begins in verse 11. Pay attention to the old command to love one another. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he says the old command is to love. He says, don't be like Cain. And look very closely here at what he says about Cain. John is here using an Old Testament passage to illustrate the very thing that he's talking about here. And this is a tremendously powerful uh, point that John is making here. Uh, The story of Cain and Abel goes back to Genesis chapter 4. If you want to read it, it's a very short passage, maybe uh, 7, maybe 11 verses. Um, They they both bring a sacrifice to God. Okay, There's no explicit instruction, Cain, Abel, you shall bring a sacrifice to me. There's no... You will not find a Bible verse where Cain and Abel are told to do this, but they know that they're supposed to do it, okay? So outside of what is actually written in the scriptures, there was obviously some command that they had gotten or that had been passed down from their father to them. This is how we worship God. We worship God by bringing sacrifices. Everybody tracking with me on that? We don't have the verse that says bring the sacrifice, but the fact that they're doing it shows that perhaps from their father it's been passed down. They know this is how you worship God. Now, for whatever reason, and again, it's not explicit, we've got to figure out what's happening in the passage. <laughs> they, they bring their sacrifices, and Abel, who is a, um, uh, he farms sheep, he farms animals, brings from his flocks a sacrifice, kills it. Offers it to God. Cain uh, grows fruits and vegetables and brings from his uh, surplus and sacrifices to God. But only Abel's sacrifice pleases God. God says, "I'm pleased with what you've done. I'm not pleased with there." Again, there was some kind of instruction as to the who, what, when, where, why, and how of sacrifice. In the principle that was there, uh, hidden but true nonetheless. Is that blood sacrifice pleased God? When Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what they did? How did they try to hide their sin? They made little coverings out of vegetables. Adam's, you know, figurative fig leaf. What did God do to man's uh, response to trying to cover up their sin? Remember what He did? God made clothes for them. You know how He made clothes. An animal had to die. There was a blood sacrifice. Your sin was so bad, you can't just take a bunch of palm fronds and cover it up. Death is a result of disobedience. And so Cain decided, you know what, God says blood sacrifice is required for right worship. But you know what? I don't have many animals. My brother's got all the animals. I'm going to bring what is convenient for me. And Cain gets very upset gets very jealous that Abel's sacrifice was approved by God and that his wasn't. This provoked a bitter jealousy that then morphed into hatred and finally evolved into what? Murder. But this is no normal murder. Now, I don't know what a normal murder is, but pay attention to this. The Hebrew word for slay... He slayed his brother. He slew his brother it is the Hebrew word for to butcher, to cut the throat. Okay? There's a reason we send the kids to preschool church. Um, this is visceral. Um, it, it means to butcher or to cut the throat. It is sacrificial language used of what you did to animals when you sacrifice them. Okay, so get this really closely because you're not going to understand why in the world John would reference Cain when he's talking about this. Cain was so uh, not wanting to, he didn't want to obey God. He wanted to give what was convenient and he refused to bring a blood sacrifice to worship God. But the end result of all of his his jealousy, his hatred, and his anger is that Cain does what? Offers a blood sacrifice to his God of his brother. It's just that his God is not Yahweh. It's who? What's it say? The evil one. Wow, what a powerful illustration that Cain doesn't want to obey God in how God is worshipped, but will worship his own comfort and convenience to the point of murdering butchering, slaying, sacrificing his brother. And the things that is perhaps the most sad about this is that God warns Cain. He tells him. Cain's face just, he he pouted, I guess, when God didn't accept his sacrifice. He was upset. And God said, Cain, why has your face fallen? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted too? Cain, there's a way for you to enjoy my blessings, too. Just obey. And he says, Behold, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. And instead of mastering his anger, Cain's anger mastered him, and he sacrificed his brother. In a similar way, God's Word is replete with warnings about our anger. James 1.20 the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun set on your anger. And the truth is, this morning, that, that anger is not, it's not a character flaw. <laughs> anger begins with jealousy. Anger is kind of like a, a, a pot of water. It starts simmering when you get jealous. Why did he get that promotion and not me? I've been working hard. Simmering, then it, it starts to boil into hatred. Now you've been you've been simmering in that jealousy long enough. You're ready to crank that flame up just a little bit, and now you hate. You're obsessed with your jealousy, and your your jealousy has turned the heat up and turned into hatred. And then that hatred boils over and overflows into murderous intent. That's not good. God warns us. About this, and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did Cain get angry? Why do we get angry? Well, well, the truth is that we get angry because something infringes upon our sovereignty. We want to make every decision about what ha- we want to be the master of our own destiny. One of the things I think that's that's uh, just strange. You remember Satan's original temptation to Eve? Why? Why should Eve eat from the tree? Because you will be what? like God. Okay? Satan said that. Everybody agree? Eat this, you will be like God. Here's the problem. What do we already know about Adam and Eve? Whose image are they made in? Made in God's image? So Adam and Eve are already what? Like God. What happens when they eat the fruit? Nothing. They're not any more, they're actually less in God's image because sin has marred that but they are like God in the sense that they want God's rights and God's prerogatives. Now they act like God. So when you take something from me that I feel like I should have, I get angry. Because I am my own little God. And that's what happened to Cain. Cain said, God, you're not pleased with what I offered you? You want a blood sacrifice? Fine. Here comes my brother. And he sent him to him. Self-worship is satanic worship. worship Cain had sovereignly decided how he was going to worship God and was hateful when his disobedient efforts were not rewarded. Now, I seriously doubt that there is anyone here that considers themselves a murderer. But let me ask you the question. If this equation works, you may not be a murderer. Do you harbor jealousy? Have you been jealous this week? Now listen, I'm not going to say if you're a jealous person, you're you're a murderer. Although the Bible will make that connection for us in just a few minutes. But if you self-righteously go, well, can check that one off the list. I'm not a murderer. Things good with me. If you harbor jealousy, your sin is no different in kind, just in magnitude. You are a murderer at heart. You just may not have cranked all the heat up to actually get there yet. It starts with jealousy, it morphs into hatred, and it overflows into murder. And so uh, we have to remember, uh, uh, verse 15 says it well, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, Murder is always in the heart before it's ever in the hand. Murder is always in the heart before it's over in the hand. And if you harbor murderous intent, but you're too weak or afraid to actually carry it out, you're no less guilty than if you've committed the crime. If there is a boss, a co-worker, a Uncle Charlie, somebody that you hate, the Bible says you're you're guilty of the entire crime, even though you haven't actually committed it. The Bible says for Christians, this is not right. We have to there's a reason it says don't let the sun set on your anger. When you, let the sun, when you go to bed with anger in your heart and you have not cleared the slate for the day, when you wake up tomorrow, it's still there. And it, it grows and it continues to boil. So when it says no murderer has eternal life, let's just be real clear. The Bible is not denying that a murderer can come to salvation. It's just saying you cannot be a murderer and have eternal life abiding in you at the same time. You're either abiding in murderous intent or you're in, abiding in eternal life. Certainly, forgiveness is available, but when we talk about present reality, you cannot be a murderer and an abiter at the same time. So, friends, don't be like Cain this morning. Before he committed this atrocity, this perverted sacrifice of blood, God warned him and said, Be careful about this jealousy that I see. I can see it on your face. Be careful with it, master your sin. Don't let it master you. Listen carefully to what God has to say this morning. Now, we skipped over verse 13. We didn't comment about it. It's kind of a strange verse. He says, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. If John is here talking about love, it it seems kind of strange for verse 13 to kind of pop in there. What's this about the world and hatred? Here's the point that I think he's trying to make. In verse 11 11 and 12, he's talking about Cain. Verse 13, he jumps to the world. And he's saying, Guys, just so we're clear, Cain is the poster boy. He's the prototype for the world. He's the prototype. So why is John here teaching us to expect opposition? Well, you know, I remember growing up with some old G.I. Joe cartoons, and they said knowing is half the battle. There's some truth to it. If you think that when you become a Christian, life is going to be a bed of roses, what's going to happen to you when the first bad thing happens? Bad things. Your faith's going to falter. You're going to, you're going to question what's going on. But if you're expecting it, you're prepared for it. And I love this quote, it pertains well to what we're talking about this morning Godlessness is disturbed by the condemning presence of righteousness and will remove the cause of discomfort if at all possible. Godlessness is disturbed terribly by the condemning presence of righteousness and will remove it for the cause of discomfort, if possible. You don't have to, like Dan Cathy, say anything negative. Everything in his statement about Chick-fil-A was positive. It wasn't a negative word that came out of it. But his defense of righteousness so provoked hatred on the other side that godlessness is disturbed by the condemning presence of righteousness. Righteousness is condemning simply because it exists, regardless of how it says what it believes in a loving way. So here's, here's the thing that, that's important for us to remember. And it's a little bit of play, of, uh, play on words, so hang with me here for a second. <coughs> when it comes to our love, and when it comes to how we relate to the world, it is not enough for us to be good. We have to be godly. It's not enough for us to be good. We have to be God. If we're good, then we become a pat on the back to the world. Say, hey, look at the kind of citizens we produce. Godliness is always distinctive. If in your goodness, people just think you're a good person, they don't think you're a godly person, you have fallen short of the biblical requirement of righteousness. In our goodness, we need to make it clear that we're not being good because this is how we were raised. We're being good because we want to glorify God. And there is a world of difference between being good, being righteous for the glory of God, and being good for your family's name. They're not the same. Your family's not God. Now, we don't want to smirch any family's name, but wanting to uphold the pride or the boastfulness of your family tradition can be as big of a sin as anything else. We have to live for the glory of God. God. And it is interesting as we think about the world's relationship to us and, and hating our righteousness. The thing that, that's strange is when we love our brothers and sisters, we love them for the very reason that the world hates them. We love them because we're trying to be righteous. I, I want to encourage people to live more for Jesus, not less for Jesus. But the strange truth is, the more you live for Jesus, the more opposition you may get from the world. And so the thing that the world hates people for, righteousness, is one of the very reasons that we want to love and encourage more righteousness to happen. So friends, the truth of the matter is the world's not our friend on moral issues. And when you take a stand, even if you do it gently, and you should do it gently, don't be a jerk defending truth. The truth is already offensive enough. You don't need to be any more offensive in your personality or in your proclamation of truth. Let the truth provide the offense, not your words or your speech or your personality. But even if you do it gentle and cushion it with cotton balls, the very fact that you're talking about truth is going to be offensive to people. And we had better love each other or it can be overwhelming in this world. You'll notice that that Abel's chief offense, what did Abel do wrong in this whole situation with Cain? He obeyed God. And because of his obedience, his brother killed him. Tough. In verse 14, John provides a dramatic and emphatic contrast. He says, this is how the world is, but we, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He's saying here as clearly as possible that for Christians, love is the way that we live. Christians love their brothers and sisters in Christ. As a matter of fact, it says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because of our love. And I love it here because John personally demonstrates this love that he's got. All throughout his letter, he refers to the church as uh, the brethren. And he uses these illustrations of, you know, the one, the one who loves his brother. Here in, in uh, verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, what? Brethren. If the world hates you, he's not talking about the brethren or a person loving his brother. What has John just done? John, the apostle, who uh, at the Lord's table was the one who reclined on Jesus' shoulder, the beloved disciple, calls the congregation at Ephesus his brothers. He doesn't say, No, listen, I'm an apostle, so we need to kind of keep some professional distance here. John demonstrates his love by saying, Guys, listen, life is difficult, the world will hate us because of our righteousness. But I'm in it with you. Even though I'm an apostle, I'm not immune to this. We are brothers. He's demonstrating this very principle of love that he's talking about. It's beautiful to see. So John knew that fellowship is an important tool. And if we live in a world that hates righteousness, oh, goodness, when we talk about the fellowship that we can have, the conversations that we talk about at church fellowships have got to be about something that's actually going to help us to live for God not our fantasy football team. In a world of hatred, darkness, and death, Christians should be known for light, for life, and for love. And so if we are to love and avoid jealousy, and we have this terrible picture of Cain and how he violated the command of love, how in the world do we conjure up this love? Do we all need to sign up for a seminar next week on how to be more loving people? You know, how to, how to do it? No. Verse 16 provides the answer. It's by constantly looking to the extraordinary example of Christ. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Man, that's great. Don't you love that verse? It's the gospel packed in a nutshell. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Don't you just want to put a period right there? But there's not a period, is there? What does it say? It's not enough to claim the privilege of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. But what? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Just as John said, the person who is forgiven will be a forgiver. He says here, people who benefit from the sacrifice of Christ will do what? Sacrifice for others. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus has done here. And if Cain is the poster child, the prototype for the world, Christ is the poster child, the prototype for the church. Cain is, in his essence, a life taker. Christ, in his nature, is a life giver. Cain demonstrated his hate by action against his brother, Jesus demonstrates love by his action for his brothers. And so when we talk about being Jesus' kind of people, and if Jesus sets the example for what love is, we know love by this, that he laid down his life. If the essence of love is sacrifice, where's the love? Where's love? Who? Have you sacrificed for? Jesus laid down, sacrificed. Jesus wasn't a martyr. Jesus was not killed. Jesus gave up his life. Didn't have to go that way, but he did. And when we look at the New Testament, there is hardly a verse in the New Testament that talks about love that doesn't also talk about the cross. You cannot biblically talk about mushy-gushy love because there's always blood and gore affiliated with the love in the New Testament. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4:10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What makes the cross so special? it's the fact that God sacrificed for people who could not pay the debt that they owed. If Jesus didn't substitute for us, if our condition was not better after Jesus died, then his death was maybe, you know, a heroic effort, but it didn't really amount to anything. Jesus sacrificed and paid a debt that we could not repay. And our love as Christians is the greatest proof to a watching world about the truth of the Christian message. If the irreducible message of the Christian faith is the cross and God giving of himself... If we do not with equal fervor give to each other, we have now put ourselves and our lives at at odds with the very message that is the central message of the, the Christian faith. The central message of the Christian faith is that God is a giving God. And when we hoard our love, our stuff, our things, how can the love of God be in us? Don't put yourselves at odd with Calvary, the most supreme and defining event. And don't belittle by your lack of love the message that you say you support. So the truth is, in our final point here, when we love, when we, when we really love, when we understand that love is sacrifice, we prepare ourselves for a more faithful future by preparing to wage a war that is both uh, internal and external. It is an exterior and interior offensive. Now, I will, I will warn you at this point, uh, we're not going to finish the outline. The last little section of your, um, your sermon, the last four blanks on your page, that's going to be our sermon next week. Just as I've been thinking through this, those last little blanks, those, those need to be their own thing. Um, and we'll talk about why next week. So come on back. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll talk here uh, about the external warfare. We'll talk about the internal war next week. The exterior war is about guarding our hearts from being hardened by worldliness. Look at verses 17 and 18. He just finishes in verse 16 talking about this extraordinary example that God gives us of laying down His life for us. And then He puts the ethic in there. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren because what Jesus has done, we should do likewise and be willing to sacrifice our very lives if necessary. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him How does the love of God abide in Him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. This verse starts with a but. It is a contrast in verse 17 to the example that we have seen in verse 16. We're talking about an individual here who is being contrasted with the self-giving, self-sacrificing nature of Christ. And you'll also see that there is a shift from the plural or the general. John says, we, 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 we ought to.